story was told of an old man who had been just languishing on his deathbed for several days, and he, he summoned up enough strength to just prop himself up on the side of the bed and speak to his lovely wife who had kept a, just a faithful vigil at his bedside. So if you can just picture this, this man, all the strength he had to prop himself up, and he wanted to talk to his wife that was there. And he said, Sarah, he said, when I asked you to marry me, I hardly had a thing to my name, yet you said yes. Then I lost, a, you know, the little I had in the depression, but you stuck by me the whole time. And when the war broke out, I had to enlist, and you enlisted as a nurse so that you could be near me. And when I was wounded in battle, it was at my side. You were at my side uh, in the hospital every day throughout the long recovery time that I had. And Sarah, since then, it seems like we've had nothing but one struggle after another. And now I'm on my deathbed, and the first face I see every morning is yours. You know something, Sarah? You're bad luck. <laughs> Well, that's one perspective. However, I do think that we would all agree it's probably not the right one. And I said that to say this, folks, perspective, the way we choose to view things is really important. That's something that we need to um, think about. In fact, oftentimes, our perspective actually alters our reality. Today, what I want you to do is um, as we began, I want to begin by asking you to just consider your perspective and more importantly, the perspective of others on your Christian life, how that they view you. You know, what difference does it make that you're a Christian? Just think about that for a minute. What difference does it make that you're a Christian? Um, or what can others see in your life that is unique and compelling and makes them want to know more about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I'm frankly just a, a little bit weary of both being and being around anemic Christians you know, who seem to me just as cranky and just as obnoxious and just as discouraged and just as ordinary as those people that do not know Jesus Christ. You know, if as Christians we get discouraged when things go badly and we blow up under pressure and we, we snarl at those who mistreat us, how are we any different than anyone else as a Christian? You know, what's compelling about that? Well, that is something that Jesus addressed in Matthew, the fifth chapter. I'd like to read that starting with verse 43. It says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not... Uh, do not even pagans do that? Folks, there is one thing for certain here. The call to follow Jesus Christ is not a call to be ordinary. Talked about that a little bit in Sunday school this morning. It was alluded to. It's not ordinary. So today, as we continue in our verse-by-verse -verse study of, of um, Philippians here, 
Um, I want us to look at four extraordinary choices that mark the Apostle Paul. And if we have the right perspective, it should mark us as being truly different as well. So we want to kind of get into that. And that first choice is this, is always respond to adversity with advance. Always respond to adversity with advance. And we're going to start off in the 12th verse and go through 14. It says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Now, we know from past lessons here, you know, Paul was arrested. And after several um, hearings, he was convinced that he could not receive justice, true justice in Palestine. So he exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And we also know from Acts how Paul, he endured a shipwreck on his way to Rome. But when he finally got to Rome, there he was turned over to the captain of the Praetorian Guard. You know, the NIV, it translates here as palace guard, is what we just read. Now, the Praetorian Guard, he, that, you know, that was an elite special forces unit of the Roman army. Now, at this time, they were 9,000 strong, and their main job was just to keep order in the capital city and serve as the emperor's personal bodyguards. That's what they were for. Now, Paul was given the opportunity to live under house arrest, but let me talk about that just for a second. Basically, if he had the means to pay his own room and his own board, um, he got to arrange his own housing and have a degree of freedom under this house arrest as he waited for his case to make its way through the various legal processes. And under this house arrest, um, friends could freely come and go and visit him, but he was literally chained to a Roman guard 24-7 for two and a half years. You know, if you can imagine that, but that's still more freedom than he would have had if he was in a jail cell. Well, Paul's chains caused an incredible chain reaction. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Um, first, you know, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, probably the world's undisputed number one evangelist and church planter, he got a new audience. He got a new audience. See, about every six hours or so, a new soldier rotated through. You know, Paul, he could not escape um, those soldiers. But the good part about it is those soldiers couldn't escape Paul either. They were chained right there with him. And as members of the church in Rome and Christians from all over the world, like Epaphroditus, you know, when they came to see and to strategize and to share with Paul news from the churches all over the world that he had started, um, these Roman soldiers, they were listening. You know, they were right there. They couldn't go anywhere, so they had to hear all of this. And there's just no way that Paul didn't, you know, eventually share the gospel with every one of those soldiers. You know he did. And in fact, we know many of them, they became Christians, those soldiers did. And according to Paul, all 9,000 of the Roman army elite of the elites, 
They heard the gospel, and they were familiar, and frankly, it seems that they had some sympathy um, for Paul, for the cause there. Now, a second um, positive reaction to Paul's chains was bold witnessing. That comes along with it. You know, his enemies, they no doubt assumed that, hey, if we strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So they kind of figured if, hey, if we do Paul in, that'll end that whole church business. But that's not what happened here. Here's an interesting um, insight when we're studying this. The word Paul uses here for speak in verse 14 is a different word than the word preach in verse 15. And looking that up, um, Caruso in verse 15 means to preach or to herald. And because of Paul's imprisonment here, preachers everywhere, they kind of turned up the heat. They were pretty excited about what was going on, and they took advantage of that, and they turned up the heat in their preaching. But the word speak in verse 14, um, laleo, it describes normal everyday conversations. So there's two different words here, meaning two different things. Because of Paul's chains, most of the brothers, regular Christians everywhere, they were boldly and fearlessly um, in all their daily conversations sharing God's word with coworkers and family and friends. They were doing it in just the normal conversations of the day. Now, there's a third um, result or reaction here that's really not mentioned in the scripture or in the text, but I think it's worthy to note here. In this season of ministry um, in which Paul, he wasn't allowed to travel, he wasn't allowed to, to speak, you know, in, in big crowds, what did he do? Well, he sat down and he wrote letters. That's what he did. And, you know, today we don't have one single recording of the Apostle Paul's sermons, but we do have his letters, don't we? That's something that's pretty exciting. Now, I'm sure it didn't feel like it at the time, but 2,000 years later, you know, from our perspective, this time um, that Paul, he spent on a Roman shelf, so to speak, because they thought that if they hid him from the cause, he couldn't do anything. Um, so this time that Paul was kind of on a Roman shelf, it would end up being probably the most important and actually the most far-reaching and impacting season of ministry in his entire life. I mean, think about it. Since then, we've been able to see and read those letters. So the truth of the matter is when Paul was in prison, his ministry was more far-reaching far then or, or now than it was then because of we all get to read what he wrote there. Now look at verse 12. Paul says this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, talking about the, all the adversity going on, has really served to advance the gospel. Now, this letter to the, the Philippians here, in fact, much of, Paul, much of Paul's writings after his years chained to this Roman soldier um, is filled with military language. You'll hear Paul use words that kind of describe something in the military. For example, the word advance. That describes the work that the Roman army engineering units, um, who during campaigns of conquest, they traveled in advance of the main force to remove trees and to build bridges and literally just carve roads um, through the wilderness so that the men and equipment coming along behind them could move with haste unencumbered by the train. In other words, they kind of prepared the way there 
for um, the army to come on. And Paul says, they put me here um, to get me out of the fight. And that's why he believed that they, that's why he was chained as a guard. But instead, it has allowed me to advance, to move ahead of God's army, to chart a course and pave a road for all, for everyone to follow. So Paul is pretty excited about that. The army of God, you see, will never be stopped. Never. When facing adversity, we choose to advance. That was Paul's motto. That's what he did. Now, of course, Jesus told us all in John, the 16th chapter, in this world, you will have trouble. But again, our perspective is everything. The way we think about things is everything here. And it's true that, you know, what does it um, break us? It makes us stronger. Every time we go through a battle, um, if we endure it, we're stronger for the next one there. And God has promised in 1 Corinthians 10 that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we could bear. If we start thinking about those things, and then everyone knows Romans 8 and verse 28, he works all things for good for those who love him and call to his purpose. We've used that scripture many times. So when you think about these things, it's like, how can we fail? You know, how can we fail? You know, it's been recorded that, that Napoleon said his single greatest defeat occurred on one of those days when everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And as he stood top of one ridge and he watched the enemy roll just like waves over his troops from the next ridge, he realized that the day was lost. So he did something that he never did before. Um, Napoleon ordered the drummer at his side to sound the retreat. And when he ordered this drummer to sound the retreat, nothing happened. And he said it again, sound the retreat. But again, silence, nothing happened. So he looked square at the boy and he screamed, I told you to sound retreat. But tears running down this boy's face. And the boy replied in a quivering voice said, General Napoleon, I never learned how to play retreat. And, he, and Napoleon was so moved that this young man would follow him into battle, not knowing how to retreat. He said, well, then sound the charge. <laughs> and that drummer's stick started flying. And um, this rallied the men together, and they obeyed the order, and the victory was snatched out of the jaws of death, the jaws of, jaws of defeat there. Folks, I don't know the adversity um, in your life today. I don't know that. But if Jesus Christ is your general, it's time for you to charge. Well, the second choice all Christian followers must make is to respond to rivalry with rejoicing. Respond to rivalry with rejoicing. Starting with verse 15. <clears throat> Paul says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not, not sincerely, um, supposing that they could stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. Now that word, erathia, it's translated selfish ambition, literally refers to one who politics. That's what that word means. It describes one who puts himself forth as a, as a candidate. You know, he's trying to get people to vote for him or to support him or to follow his leadership. 
Paul said, there are preachers who from pure motive of advancing the cause are speaking more boldly than ever before. He says, yes, that is true. That's happening. But then he also says, there are others who are more my rivals than friends who have been jealous of my leadership, who've been jealous of my ministry, and now they're just trying to take advantage of the opportunity to see, um, that they see, to increase their own popularity and their own influence. Now, I don't think it should surprise any one of us here that someone like Paul would have rivals. You know, he was, you know, I suspect this was a man, he was easy to respect, but he was hard to like. I kind of suspect he was that kind of person. You see, Paul was a, a hard-driving, um, goal-oriented, type A personality. You know, we saw that in his conflict with Peter and also with his own mentor, Barnabas, over John Mark. We've seen that happen. Paul always did what Paul thought was right. In his ministry, it was his ministry, and in his ministry, it was my way or the highway. But he, you know, but Paul was good here, you know, and his incredible self-sacrifice proves his pure motives here. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's not hard to understand how um, such a man develops critics and rivals, you know, from others who want his authority and influence just like Paul had. Well, what was Paul's response to the people preaching at some, you know, at least someone, as it says in, in verse 17, just to stir up trouble. You know, what was his response to that? They was literally just to irritate Paul, you know, Paul the big shot. They wanted to get at him. Well, notice Paul's response in verse 18 there. What does it matter? The important thing is in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. You know, we know that if people had preached anything but the truth, if they were lying or they were preaching false doctrines, he would have responded in a different way. You know, he would have refuted their teaching. He would have called them out by name, you know, so the whole church could shun them. Paul was that kind of person. He did not mind standing up for the truth, and he would. You see, he didn't care um, who scored the points as long as God's team was winning the game. He didn't care that way. You know, it seems like through my time in the ministry, other youth ministers and other ministers, you know, it seems like rivalry and envy, you know, it's kind of been a problem for a lot of preachers. But really, it's a problem for everybody, right? It happens for everybody. Have you ever thought, you know, well, I don't know why they made him an elder. You ever thought about that? Or I don't know why he's heading that group. Or I don't know why that person is the director of VBS. Or I don't know why that person is saying the prayer. Or I don't know why that person gets to sing on the stage. Or I don't know why God gave them that big house or that nice car or that fat salary. I mean, I know they're generous and all that, and they do a lot of good, but it's just the way they act. I don't like it. I want to share something with you. Consider. They have their money. They have their influence. They have their position. They have their gifts. They have their ministry because their Lord entrusted them with that stewardship, folks. And he will hold them accountable for their stewardship. We're not the one to do that. 
God is. He's the one that allowed them that stewardship. He's the one that's going to hold them accountable for it. So instead of worrying about them, we should focus on trying to be faithful in the little things that he's entrusted to us. And if we're faithful for those, maybe God will reward us with more. So like Paul, we should not be jealous, you know, but to choose to respond to rivalry with rejoicing all the time. A third essential choice that we all need to make is this, is to respond to testing with triumph. Respond to testing with triumph. At the end of verse, starting with the end of verse 18, Paul said this, Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, even in the time of testing here, Paul chose to rejoice. I know that was, had to be hard, you know, because when we're tested, we don't always feel like rejoicing, but we should. Now, Paul could do that because he knew two things that were going to sustain him. And if you back up and read those verses, you'll find out this. The prayers of faithful friends, that's one thing, and the power of the Holy Spirit. He knew that deliverance, soteria, you know, the normal word for salvation or to, um, or rescue was on the way. You know, some people thought this. Some people said, well, Paul knew he was going to be rescued, so it was easy for him to do this. But Paul didn't know that. You know, Paul did not know that. In fact, listen what was really his concern. You know, what Paul was, was, you know, God has a plan for my life. You know, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this case of life, this case of life, but I do know that God is going to save me either in body or my soul. And he, you know, look closely at what Paul's talking about here. You know, he was depending upon the prayers of God's people, just like we do. And we've seen God answer prayers right here. We depend on the prayers of God's people and the power of God's spirit to give him strength so that he would not do anything to bring shame so that we, he would have the sufficient courage to face whatever God allowed so that whether in life or in death, you know, he would in his body with his life exalt Christ. He would bring triumph and victory for Christ. You know, Paul's eagerly expected hope here, it was not that he would be released. That wasn't his hope. When you go back and read this, you'll find out that um, whatever came, whatever, you know, whether it was release or whether it was torture and death, he would honor the Lord. Either way, he was going to honor the Lord. Question, when was the last time that you prayed that way? When was the last time I prayed that way? Lord, I just lost my job and my first prayer is to help, help me to bring you glory through my unemployment. Do we ever pray that way? Or Lord, I've got cancer. Please honor me um, or help me to honor you in my suffering. Or Lord, my kids are breaking my heart. Would you please give me the strength to show all my family and friends how real Christians deal with real problems? How many times do we pray prayers just like that? Lord, help me turn my test into your triumph. And that's what Paul was doing here. What a lesson. 
for us to learn there. Folks, you and I, we've all been called to do exactly just that. And finally, number four, in life's ultimate test, we need to choose to respond to death with delight. Now, I know that sounds awful harsh, but we do need to respond to death with delight. Paul concludes this, starting with verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through uh, my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So to depart or to remain, that was a tough choice for Paul. Now that Greek word for depart, analo, is yet another military term, and it brings kind of two meanings in light here. You know, it means to strike the tent. You know, when it's time for a soldier to, to march to the next place, he must first take down his tent. And then Anna Lowe also described the act of loosening the moorings of a ship, you know, before sailing away to another place. So you see here, Paul um, saw this, you know, his own death. He was thinking this way. This body is not for me. This body is just a tent of clay for my soul. I know this is just temporary here. My soul is what counts. Before I depart to live eternally in my father's house, I have to strike the tent, he says. Or before I sail away to be with my God, I have to release all the ropes that tie me to this earth. You know, Paul's desire was to depart. Obviously, that would have been better for him. You know, death and to go be with Christ would be a delightful victory for him. But remaining here for now might be more necessary for the people that he loved and he led. You know, staying would, of course, mean more delightful service and more faithful labor for Jesus Christ. So whatever God decided was fine with Paul. Well, friends, you and I have been called to live that same way with that same undefeatable spirit. When you look at that, we've been called to live just that way. Every day, we need to choose to respond to adversity with advance, rivalry with rejoicing, testing with triumph, and even death with a fearless delight. Folks, the lesson that we can learn from Paul, you know, wouldn't you like to be that way, really? I would. You know, more than anything, I truly desire to have Paul's perspective in life because I know it's right and I know that God bless that. You know, I want to be the true follower that Jesus Christ called me to be. But I've got to confess, it's very hard for me to make and then live those choices every single day. And I know it's hard for you to do that too because we're human. You know, there's just so many things in this world, you know, that distract me. And I know it maybe it distracts you. I'm kind of like Peter. I start out well, 
You know, I'd get out of the boat and I'd begin to walk toward Jesus, you know, and even moments there, I actually do some things that are absolutely, I think, impossible for me to do. But then I begin to notice the winds and the waves, and, and as soon as I take my eyes off of Jesus, I begin to sink. And you do too. I know you've experienced those things. But here's the good news. Just like Peter, I know what to do. And that is I cry out and I reach up to the Lord of grace. What do you do? Folks, that's the way we do it. When we fall and we lose contact with God, we reach up to the Lord of grace. Folks, there is only one way for us to live these four choices. It takes faith. It takes trust. And it takes a total surrender to the paternity and the purpose and the provision and the perspective of God. And folks, that's our challenge. That's our take home. Let's mirror our life after the Apostle Paul there, his last part of his life, the attitude that he had and the perspective that he had. Folks, as Christians, whether we stay or whether we go, we're going to be with Jesus. That's a win-win situation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. For your word. And Father, we just ask that you would help us all to have a perspective like Paul. Have a perspective that would be pleasing to you. And Father, we say we're Christians, but Father, help us to live like it. Help us to make decisions like we're Christians. And Father, we just thank you in advance for what a wonderful thing that you've done for us, that you've forgiven us. And Father, help us to remain faithful so that we will see you one day. And we will live with you eternally. In Jesus' name, amen.